0: Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day everyone, welcome to the Footyology Podcast. This is the Round 17 Preview Edition as we start gearing up towards finals. COVID uh, still causing all sorts of complications in terms of venues. In fact, as we record, there's still one venue to be locked down. Uh, we do know the state, however, which is a bit of an advance <laughs> on this time last week. But we're getting through. The season goes on and uh, good to see. And we're seeing some great footy at the same time. As I say, very good morning to my footyology co-host, Mark Fine. How goes it, Finey? All good. Interesting that there's
1: been sort of uh, games shifted, but we still wait for one, as you said, when we have laid down this podcast. I'll tell you this much. It'll be an interesting afternoon on Mars, won't it? Gold Coasting GWS, that'll
0: be different. And I reckon the locals will turn up and see it. Well, you'd hope so. <laughs> it's going to be uh, certainly a good test of the interest in AFL footy from <laughs> a neutral perspective for them. Let's hope it's not one of those typically midwinter freezing uh, Ballarat afternoons, but. Uh, Yep, well, even that might not be the strangest venue we see a game played at this season. It was pretty bizarre last Sunday watching Sydney and West Coast down at Cadinia Park, certainly. Um, This podcast always proudly brought to you by Palmer Bet. Play the punting advantage this footy season. Gamble responsibly and uh, we've got odds... As we record this, head-to-head odds for every game bar one. Uh, That, of course, the game with the venue is still to be determined. But you can check uh, on updates right up to game time at uh, the Palmerbet app or at ParmaBet.com. Some great services provided there, and we're very happy to have them on board. Not the only sponsor we're happy to have on board. Finally, tell us about the others. Well, on a weekend of
1: varying venues, lock in 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. There's no change, no move, no need to scratch your heads on that one. That's where Andrew's always has been and will be when hopefully you, our wonderful podcast listener, goes there to try their wonderful hamburgers. Andrew's Hamburgers, 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. It's a traditional hamburger in a traditional hamburger joint, by the way, both brilliant. And speaking of brilliant joints, why don't you get one built for yourself by West Point Properties? Nick Spartels will make sure, with his eye for detail, that you'll have the best house in the street. We thank West Point Properties and Andrew's Hamburgers
0: for their support, Rowan. And after you've dealt with them, get some brilliant stats too at Stats Insider, a sports and data-driven industry leader, providing model projections and analysis to more than 15 sports across the world, including this year's Wimbledon, and European Championships. And finally, as we record this, I've just seen the penalty shootout between Italy and Spain. Always dramatic stuff, but conducted in a very good spirit. Some hijinks going on between the respective skippers at the toss of coin for ends for penalties, which was good to see. Anyway, I digress. Stats Insider simulates an event 10,000 times to best understand both the range of possible outcomes and the probability of each result. Along with their famed pre-match and in-game projections, Stats Insider is also known for its full season projections, which right now has Richmond as just a 43.7 chance of returning to finals for a fifth straight year. Who would have thought that in March? Wow. Stats Insider, also home to some of Australia's best independent sports writing and analysis. Everything's free to use on the site. So check them out at statsinsider.com.au and give them a follow on Twitter at Stats Insider. All right, we've got heaps to get through. It's been a big few days in football news, nine games to preview, and some wonderful nostalgia to indulge at the end of this show. Let's get into it on Footyology News Feed. Well, some very big footy news breaking on Tuesday, and that, of course, was the announcement by the Hawthorne Footy Club of an officially sanctioned coaching succession plan from Alistair Clarkson to Sam Mitchell. Uh, the Hawks' hand, of course, being forced a bit or a lot by Collingwood's courting of Sam Mitchell. So... They've jumped in first. Um, Clarko was sounding out the club about how long a deal he could expect. Uh, The Hawks, mainly Jeff Kennedy, it seems, clearly unprepared to commit to the long term. And so as it stands, Alistair Clarkson will coach the Hawks in 2022 and then hand the baton to Sam Mitchell. Already some speculation that uh, in the manner of the famous or infamous Mick Malthouse, Nathan Buckley deal, that isn't how it will actually pan out, that Clarko will jump ship even before next year. I'm not so sure about that myself, and I'll give you a few reasons why, but uh, pretty dramatic developments yesterday, finally Yeah, I was uh, surprised when I
1: became aware of the situation, not though when you think about it, because, of course, this is to scupper Collingwood's plans to... The point, Sam Mitchell, no doubt he would have been not only spoken to, we know that as a fact, but maybe over the line already, Intel was pretty good that he was going to get a very, very close looking at for that job. So Hawthorne have jumped in and Rowan, I don't think Clark will be coaching Hawthorne next year because well, I just with Collingwood and maybe other clubs, hopefully David Teague finishes off the season strongly. They're looking good at the moment, Carlton, and that's not on the agenda. But I just feel as though Clarko may be coaching next year, but not Hawthorne. As for the appointment, ready-made to coach, brilliant football brain, highly respected, and Hawthorne are very fortunate to be able to call on a Sam Mitchell after the run of Clarkson. Now, we don't know how Sam Mitchell will coach as a standalone coach but boy oh boy if anybody's got the credentials and the pedigree to be a top liner he is surely at the top of that list as well
0: well just a, a few thoughts uh that have gone through my head I don't think Clarkson I'm not for a moment saying he hasn't got a healthy ego any senior coach has and it, it helps keeps them in keep them in the job but I think Clarko has a a sort of sense of duty and and commitment that's beyond a lot of coaches. And I also think there is a genuine care for that club and where it's left going into the future. And, uh, you know, remembering too, this is a club that gave him his start at senior coaching level. And that wasn't the case for a Mick Malthouse. You know, Collingwood was his third port of call. I think uh, the other really important difference between the two scenarios for me is that Collingwood, by the time the handover happened, were literally competing for a premiership. In fact, there's always been a lot of talk about how that might have cost them a premiership. And I think there's some substance to that. But you had Mick Malthouse at the peak of his powers shooting for back-to-back premierships for what would have been a first time for him. With an era parent who not only had no practical, uh, you know, hands-on coaching experience at senior level, but um, also what you know at that point wasn't coaching his own club. Now Sam Mitchell is coaching Box Hill, so they'll sort of be at arm's length from each other. There's absolutely no doubt about Clarko's regard for Sam Mitchell, so I don't think there's an element of jealousy or anything about this. But finally, very, very significantly, Collingwood was shooting for a flag. Hawthorne is very much in a development phase. So the two coaches, the incumbent and the heir apparent, are both absolutely going to be on the same page. So I don't think it's going to be awkward. I don't don't think there's going to be any mixed messaging. The other thing about Clarko, from a purely selfish personal point of view, Yeah, okay, he he could get the Collingwood job now. But if he hangs on another 12 months, takes a lot more time to assess his future coaching options, maybe Collingwood goes with a stopgap for a year. Who knows? By the end of 2022, he could have a choice of several jobs. You know, that's when David Teague's supposed to come out of contract. Stuart Dew comes out of contract. There may be other clubs that emerge next season. He might have a wider choice of coaching options at the end of 2022 than he'll have at the end of this year. For all those reasons, and and look, I'm not saying this with absolute certainty. I I I, uh, fully concede he may maybe he will jump ship sooner, but I don't think it's at all, um, you know, uh, pushing it to suggest that he will absolutely see out this contract as it was designed and peacefully hand over the reins to uh, Sam Mitchell, as Paul Roos did did to John Longmire in Sydney, as Roos did to Simon Goodwin in Melbourne. And that's the other thing people forget about succession plans. that For every Malthouse Buckley, there's been quite a few of those situations that have worked.
1: Rowan, first of all, on the succession plan, other than giving it a bad name for... Well, as long as we're around and probably longer, Collingwood and Malthouse and Buckley, that situation, you are correct, has nothing in common with what's happening at Hawthorne. That was made particularly difficult because of Hawthor- uh, Collingwood's uh, position on the ladder. It simply wasn't the time to hand over and not the sort of person that was keen to do it anyhow. I cannot see Collingwood or Carlton there. they Carlton are certainly a possible suitor. There's no doubt. I feel for David Teague. But with Clarkson now no longer a long-term coach in Hawthorne, both Collingwood and Carlton would covet his appointment. And the fact that they're both in this market almost a standoff between the two, a a duel between the two for his services, then I expect it to happen sooner rather than later. I think one of those two clubs – It's so Carlton, isn't it, to launch a daring bid to appoint Clarko at the end of this year. It just reeks of Carlton. Maybe they've learnt their lesson from the past and maybe they'll give David Teague the rightful last year of his contract that he deserves because he could take them places. But Carlton, historically, would be an absolute go for Clarkson as we sit here today over the next few weeks.
0: Well, it has some uh, it has some strong parallels with uh, the situation Carlton went through with Brett Ratton and Mick Malthouse, doesn't it? Yep, it does. It's it's amazing how often now uh, a coaching appointment, you know, there's sort of not even a domino effect, but just the hint of a potential domino effect seems to sort of shock clubs into action. And it's interesting because we talk about the coaching pool being a lot bigger than it used to be. We've seen more clubs appoint coaches seemingly from left field, i.e. Chris Fagan, uh, Luke Beveridge, when he was appointed, was seen as being a bit left field. Phil Walsh, of course, when he was appointed. David Noble. David Noble, another one. So, I mean, it's not like there's not plenty of options out there, but uh, when push comes to shove, it's clubs sort of tend to revert to type. So in that sense, yeah, this is a very good test for Carlton as well. And yeah, I, I'm with you on I, I think he'd be really stiff to to get wound up at the end of his season. I mean, he's, he's only now had, I think now 44 games uh, as coach. That's, that's exactly two full seasons. So it's not a huge length of time. And I, I don't think their performances have been terrible and at times very encouraging. So... It's quite similar to where Brett Ratton was at. And I think in retrospect, Carlton will look at that and say they made a big mistake. So it uh, be interesting to see which way they go. And Gold Coast, of course. Well, you know, Stuart Dew engineered arguably his side's best ever win last weekend. But in their situation, you've got that shadow of the AFL hovering over you. I mean, it's essentially the AFL's club and they're very big on branding and marketing and all that sort of stuff, and and they would look on a Clarkson potentially going there as an absolute coup, and I'm sure there'd be um, no limit to how much they'd be prepared to pay him to do it, Ah, la uh, Ron Barassi in Sydney in 1993 and then Lee Matthews going to Brisbane. So, you know, we're 20 years or so down the track, but these scenarios seem to keep repeating themselves, don't they? They do, and you're right. Stuart Dew would be
1: sitting very comfortably after that great win that they had over Richmond. He would have been, as I said, I I think that was a coach maker as opposed to a coach killer, really. The sort of win that would, I think, guarantee him a spot next year. But this does change the landscape. Leon Cameron, likewise. Uh, The team is near the finals, but this has been a, a long road for GWS that supposedly was going to reap the ultimate prize by now. So maybe with the AFL being his ultimate employer, there might be some impatience there. Look, one thing I'll say, over the last few weeks, Hawthorne have really shown they're developing, again, it's so Clarkson, isn't it, that nothing stays dormant or or negative too long under his reign and, They've been good, not last week, but the couple of weeks before then, they've certainly shown something. And I think uh, that and also the fact that really there was no suggestion that from his side that he wanted to leave makes it a bit of a shock, actually, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, well, it, it, it certainly was. And uh, that was only the second of two shocks over the first couple of days of the week because Monday's shock was the – Announcement that Steve Hawking would be leaving the AFL immediately from the pretty important job of AFL operations manager and heading back to his uh, home. His, sp- I was going to say spiritual home, but home in every sense in a football manner um, to the Cattery as CEO, replacing Brian Cook, who, uh, well, enough, uh, there's been enough of his praises sung and rightly so, he's done an amazing job with that club Coming aboard uh, 19, late 1998 when the cats were just about broke, uh, and what a turnaround that's been. Steve Hocking, of course, has filled several roles at Geelong prior to taking on that AFL role in 2017. It was interesting to me finding at his press conference he made that comment about the last couple of years had felt like dog years, i.e., they'd taken an enormous toll, and he'd just been in the position, well, been in the position slightly less than four years but uh, when you think about the amount that happened uh, particularly regarding the rules and uh, attempts to declutter the game uh, there was a lot going on during Steve Hawking's reign look I've got to say I think he leaves a reasonably positive legacy um, I wasn't surprised by the negative response on social media and and uh, newspaper comment sections and whatever but I think that is how the job is now perceived publicly. It's the job where you just win no friends and everything you do pisses someone off, i.e. people complain about the look of the game, but then when they try to do something to change the look of the game, they complain about the change. So he's in a no-win position. But I think, and I did write a piece about this, which is up on Footyology now, you know, the attempts to decongest the game, open it up, make it high scoring, well, scores haven't gone up scores are, uh, I think, about one point per team up. So we're stuck with that. I don't think that's doable. But there are some interesting stats um, for this year about the impact of the men on the mark rule particularly, which show that stoppages have gone down considerably. they are about 53.2 or something average stoppages per game, as opposed to a high of over 70 in 2015, And the other really important one for me is end-to-end football. Now, percentage of scores from uh, defensive 50 to inside 50 transition this season are up to 23-point-something percent. Last year, they were hovering around 17%. So the man on the mark rule in particular has had an impact. It hasn't on scoring, but I think most people would agree the game is more open and as a result, more enjoyable to watch. And that's a credit to Steve Hawking. So I look at that, and I think that's his main legacy. How, how do you see his tenure in that journey? Well, first of all, the game is definitely better, infinitely better than
1: it was maybe three or four years ago and, and spiralling out of control with, A, the number of stoppages, and, B, the number of um, dead... Moments in a game with the ball just being flicked around with meaningless 15-metre kicks as teams were setting up their defensive lines. It's a much better game now. There's certainly more attacking play and play on through the man on the mark and through other initiatives. There is more to be done still. Steve Hocking was not a glamorous selection in terms of sort of a... maybe a a highbrow communicator. Uh, He was very much the bloke that I think most of us perceived Stephen Hawking would be from his playing days, a pretty straight shooter. He had a wide range of responsibilities, of course, that position holds that. I should also add that the match review officer and our current system, let's call it the tribunal system for want of a better term, I think is in healthy condition. We do question maybe some of the um, overall methodology of the tribunal. I do in terms of really valuing or, or weighing too much towards the outcome rather than the action. But I tell you what, I, I cannot remember the tribunal being so predictable, which is what it should be. In other words, we almost always know what the suspension is going to be. That's, that's good. So he's done well on many fields, many fronts. It just says one thing to me, though, Rowan. Doesn't Geelong have an enormous pull, whether it's players who lived in the region and got drafted elsewhere, as I often marveled through their sort of uh, old boy returnee system, or they put the call out to Stephen Hocking and he's dropped one of the most important jobs in the sport, to go back to Geelong, it's it's uh, certainly a, a club and a place that has a magnetic pull
0: these uh, during this period, and for them, hopefully, it continues long into the future. Yeah, it's a fair observation. I, I see references to Geelong as being the Green Bay Packers of the AFL, and I can sort of understand the lure because you know you can have pretty much a urban lifestyle in a semi-rural environment and you know be close to beaches and whatever so I reckon I'd be one of those people who, if I lived down there and enjoyed it you wouldn't be able to get me away so um, more power to them and uh, you know what a what a strong powerhouse of a club they've been for close to two decades now and um, they'll be in good hands in terms of Brian Cook's successor in terms of Hocking's successor at the AFL uh, several names being thrown up Brad Scott already working there and in charge of the uh, the State League. Uh, Craig Vozzo, long-time West Coast football manager. Chris Davies in Port Adelaide. Even some talk about uh, overtures to Tom Harley, Sydney's CEO, and another good Geelong boy or a person that made Geelong his home. Uh, so I reckon you can be pretty confident it's going to be one of them. I would think that Brad Scott, has almost been earmarked for this role and uh, very much a bit of a golden boy of the AFL. And that's fair enough. And look, I think um, he's eminently qualified to take on this job. Priorities will be interesting. I think the rules, um, I think the look of the game is something that still needs attention. I I think we can get better than we are and that's happening. I think things like uh, AFLW, that's part of the portfolio. And I think that needs to be given a prominence it deserves. Uh, It's been an outstanding success for five years. And I think the AFL could work a bit harder to give that more time in the sun, if you like. Uh, Obviously, player welfare, i.e. concussion, that continues to be a very pressing issue. And as you raised in our rants last week, finding the state league, well, that is a bit of a mess. And whilst it may work in a, a preparation for AFL footy sense, uh, I think there's some big issues with that in terms of downgrading it as an attractive competition that people care about. So there are all sorts of things I think hawking's successor will have on their plate. And the one thing they'll definitely have on their plate is the opprobrium of the football public. They'll certainly want to close all social media accounts and not listen to talkback radio. That would be priority number one if I was taking on that job, I think. And I would find that very difficult. Yeah, I was going to say, Robin. really. Uh, Turn off social
1: media. I was just watching an episode of South Park. You'd find it as hard as Cartman. Look, the the thing... I I would love to see Brad Scott appointed. I think he's a great logician when it comes to football. I've spoken to him before personally and heard him speak publicly. And I just love the fact that he's got a logical football brain and not everybody does. It is... um, you know what? Not that difficult. It's, it's not as complicated. I know the job is complicated, but it's not complicated to uphold the integrity of the game and to sort of get a feel of what the football public wants and what the players want. And I think Brad Scott could well do that. Now, the other thing that this person will be charged with doing now, even though it's not there's no suggestion in the far past that anybody that's held this role is necessarily, you know, inculcated with that boys' club feel. But having released that book, I think now the the truth is that that book is out there and everybody involved in football, and this is a lofty position, has a responsibility to be more transparent and certainly not to be seen to be just an appointment for another snout at the trough, so that's important as well.
0: No right, fair observation. All right, last thing on the news agenda, and we'll do it pretty quickly. Uh, because you well, I to want all... to bring
1: it up. I want to ask you, okay, how good for Essendon to get on the front foot and re sign Darcy Parish? Because I'll tell you, I, I know there's talk with Jake Stringer, etc., but he he's a chance to win the Brownlow, he has been absolutely brilliant this season and that is one loose end that had to be tied up.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, really positive times for the Bombers and, of course, following hot in the heels of Zach Merritt re-signing for a a monster six years. So, um, yeah, it's been a long time since Essendon had that sort of positivity around the place and he had players eager to recommit. should be said at the same time, it's two years, so it takes him through To the end of 2023, he'll be, I think, 25 by then. But that is when his free agency uh, qualification comes up. So, I mean, it's smart negotiating by his management. It means that next time he renegotiates, he can either... Well, he can, you know, push his case a lot harder with the option of of going somewhere else as a free agent. So, smart negotiating by him. But I, I just... Reading between the lines of his comments, you know, he seemed very, very committed to the next few years for the Bombers. So great to get uh, to get that happening. And yeah, Jake Stringer, the remaining well, not not the only one, but the remaining sort of big name to recommit. But um, I think people at the club are reasonably confident that will happen. He's um, an excellent person now, Stringer. He's fitted into that club really well. I think he's highly regarded, and I think we've. All seen more than a glimpse this season of just how big an asset he can be for them. So, yeah, great times to the Bombers in terms of uh, great players recommitting to the club. You know what that says, Rowan? What? What a great year, impact and appointment Ben Rutten has been. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, I think he's surprised a lot of people, to be honest. Maybe not yep. the players, but certainly people around the club. I think there were quite a lot of reservations. We didn't get to see his stamp on things last year much because of that very clunky co-coaching arrangement with John Warsfold. But um, there's a real sense now of of the sort of philosophy he's try- and game style he's trying to implement. And the players have really responded to that positivity after being in a bit of a, a twilight zone for way too long. So... Um, Yeah, look, whatever happens from here for Essendon, I think as a club, uh, 2021 has been a very, very positive experience. All right, that's enough on the news front for this week. We're going to have a very positive experience now with our previews of Round 17. On Footyology previews with Punch. First game of round seventeen Thursday night football. What a cracker this should be! It's in Adelaide, seven forty p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and it is Port Adelaide taking on Melbourne. Uh, things just looking not quite as good as they were for the Demons with a couple of recent losses, and Port, well, still with that question mark about their capacity over the top side. So, a great test for them. And uh, hard to split, too. The boys at Parma Bet have found those two teams head-to-head. Port Adelaide is paying $1.80 for the win, and Melbourne paying $2. So not much gap between those two prices. Stats Insider, well, they're similarly enthused. They say that the Demons are ranked 12th and 13th for tackle and clearance differential, respectively while they are also really starting to struggle on the outside as well, ranked 8th for uncontested possession differential and 13th for running bounces. As support, their current three-game winning streak is equal with Brisbane as the league's best current run and the power are now a 59.3% chance of a second straight top four berth. Obviously, selection's going to be really important in this battle of the top order. Uh, What are either side looking at in terms of changes, Farnie? Well, Melbourne is the big
1: watch, isn't it? Because if they're going to play that extra tall forward, now's the time. Now, here's the interesting call. Wiedemann's numbers were good last week. Plenty of possessions, a couple of goals. Ben Brown barely touched it. But Ben Brown had limited game time, suggesting that he may be being prepared and spared for a return to the seniors. Look, Tom Sparrow is going to be the unlucky one to miss out again. Whether or not they go down that route or Jake Melcham, they will make a change and they have to. That was a disappointing loss. I think Ben Brown might be given his opportunity this week, but it's hard to call that one. Port Adelaide, on the other hand... They don't have a heck of a lot going wrong at the moment in terms of players' availability because Butters Zach Butters is ready to return, and it'll be interesting to see which way they go. Kane Farrell definitely out. Do they bring in somebody else? Tom Clory's available. He probably comes in for Bonner Riley Bonner. So um, I would say this: the return of Butters to the lineup makes him immeasurably stronger. As for North, as for Melbourne, bringing in Brown or Wiedemann, I don't know if that helps. Now, the game obviously played on Port Adelaide's dung heap makes it very difficult for any team. But Melbourne, at the moment, without that mojo that had them so irresistible early on in the season, are not scoring enough. They simply are not. Cosie Pickett, he's still brilliant, but again, it's now almost highlight real stuff, five or six touches. Earlier on in the year, there was more substance. He needs to, again, impose himself on matches. Tom McDonald's been fine, and certainly Jackson is not expected to be a goal kicker up front. Bailey Fritch keeps the scoreboard ticking over. But all in all, I don't think that's enough to put on a score that can beat Port Adelaide. Port Adelaide's not a high-scoring team themselves necessarily, but just in the arm wrestle... Adelaide Oval, you've got to go for Port Adelaide. And I think it will be an arm wrestle. Port Adelaide for mine in a tight one by seven.
0: Yeah, it's a, a tough one to, to split. But um, that drop-off in uh, forward output is really concerning for the Demons. and It's happened quite dramatically. I was just looking at their season scores. And they were routinely clocking up 94, 95 points, 97 points. At worst, high 80s. In fact, up until the last three games, only once had their score dropped below 80 points in a game. But the last three weeks, 63, 68, 55. So tallies of nine goals, nine goals and seven goals. It's just not enough. They're still uh, arming and airing about what sort of structure they want. You know, Do they go with Brown? Do they go with Wiedemann? Do they go with neither? That's got to be sort of worked out sooner than later, I think. And you're playing away. That's a bit of an issue. The other thing that worries me here with the Demons is Port's record against Melbourne is terrific. In fact, the power of 110 of the last 12 against Melbourne. And uh, that includes um, some at the MCG as well. As far as the venue goes to the Demons, well, they lost their first game of the year in that epic against Adelaide back in round 10, They'd won the three prior to that, but none of them against the Power. Two of them against the Crows, weaker these days, and the other one against North Melbourne last year, of course, with the uh, hub existence throwing people all over the place. So they haven't played Port in Adelaide for a while. Their record against the Power isn't great, and they're certainly not kicking enough goals at the moment. So, um, look, I don't discount the possibility they could bounce back pretty effectively, but I think at home... Huge test support. They really have to win one against a good side now, I think, to convince the sceptics. And I reckon they might do it. I'm going for Port Adelaide by 10 points. That is Thursday evening. The Friday night game involves the Powers' crosstown rival. Ah! Friday night football. And it's Essendon involved for a second week in a row in the primetime Friday night slot. Geelong last week. Slightly easier engagement this time at home at Marvel Stadium against Adelaide, 7.50 p.m. this game. Uh, the Bombers are favourite here with Palmer Bet on the head-to-heads. To, head to they are paying $1.32. The Crows, you can get $3.42 on their prospects. Not a bad little tempt to that. They have played some decent footy at Docklands before. Stats Insider tell us that Essendon has won 18 of its last 23 matches against bottom eight opponents. Unfortunately for the Bombers, they're probably going to have to win six of their last seven games to play finals, though they do have the AFL's second easiest fixture from here on, with the Giants in round 19 and the Bulldogs in round 21, their only remaining assignments against current top eight teams. And a quick one on that man Darcy Parrish. He, along with Christian Petrarca, are the only two players in the league averaging at least six clearances and six inside 50s per game, while both are ranked in the league's top five for total score involvements. It has been an incredible season by the blonde haired Essendon mid, who will be a leading part of our lineup once again. Uh, what might else both the Bombers and the Crows look at doing selection wise, finally Well, I think there's a couple of things that Essendon. Might do.
1: Could they rejig the lineup to put Kyle Hooker back in defence? Because he's certainly, in recent weeks, not getting much of the ball up forward. Either that or they bring Zirk Thatcher back in the team. Unlucky not to be there. I think Guelphy was unlucky to be the medical sub. I thought he's put together a pretty decent season. Nick Cox now looks ready for a break. I know they've hung on, but I'd expect him to make way. And Tom Cutler, very much a fringe player. So another player that could come in and play in defence, by the way, is Zach Reed. So there's some options there. And I think Essendon will certainly make a couple of changes, but keep on promoting young players. So Zach Reed would come into the team and Zirk Thatcher fills in that, sort of fills that um, bill, fits that bill as well. As for Adelaide, all eyes are on whether or not Taylor Walker has recovered from that neck injury he suffered in that contact high contact in the game last week. Now He's a huge in or out, isn't he? And I don't think they're going to take any risks with him. It's not like they're pressing for a spot in the eight. So Essen could be the beneficiary of a walker free Adelaide, which certainly makes them far less potent. That being said, Tom Lynch, the forgotten forward, who's had such a great career at Adelaide since crossing from St Kilda, where he had a very second start to his career, is available. He played last week in the Sandfall, He's right to return. He kicked some goals there. And also, they've got a couple of youngsters, Braden Cook and Ronan O'Connor, on their list who kicked four goals in the sandful, And they may look at slotting them in as well. Essendon, Friday night football. Well done to the Bombers. They've been well and truly, or they well and truly deserve the spot. And playing Adelaide in Melbourne gives them an opportunity to flex their muscle. And they've got muscle now. They've got muscle in the middle with as we've discussed, Merritt and Parish. They've got a forward line that has certainly got service and, and has been dangerous at times during the year. Not always, but there are times where it's really clicked and there's been multiple goal kickers. Look, McDonald, Tippen Woody didn't get a lot of the ball last week, but he still knows where the goals are. He got a brace. they As I said, might have to rejig Hooker, but Stringer's an omnipresent danger, both forward and mid. As for Adelaide, even with Walker in the side, look, they've been valiant this year, Adelaide, probably better in South Australia than away. I just feel as though maybe, again, and it's a long haul for some of their young players, and whilst they're not as, say, raw or young as a North Melbourne or a Hawthorne, they are still pretty young, so are Essendon, but I think they are starting to show the signs that they are maybe maybe looking towards the end of the season. And it's been a good performance by them, but not good enough for me to be swayed in a game that Essendon needs to win to keep a very real chance of staying in the finals alive. I mean, this is a sign, I'm playing in the finals, not staying, they're not, they're not there yet, but but they could certainly get there and this is a big game. So I think Essendon pretty comfortably by 29.
0: Uh, I don't know if it'll be that comfortable, but I am going for the Bombers. Uh, Disappointing last week in those last three quarters, but uh, overall it's been very, very positive this year. I think um, it could be a bit of a domino effect in selection here too. I I suspect if Walker doesn't play for Adelaide, Essendon will feel a lot better about giving Cale Hooker a breather, bringing in Zerk Thatcher, who I thought was stiff to get dropped for last week and uh, playing him in defence and throwing James Stewart forward because he struggled in defence last year. So it'll be interesting to see what they do in terms of both selection and structure. Adelaide have played some decent footy under the roof. Uh, their record over the last few years is about 50-50 and they're 1-1 so far this year at the venue. Um, a pretty good win there first up, but lost to Carlton a couple of weeks back. So they have played there recently too, which will be... A bit of a help. They haven't beaten Essendon, actually, since 2017. Bombers winning the last three clashes. Not by a lot in each case, but comfortably enough. I don't think this will necessarily be comfortable. I I still rate Adelaide. I think their resilience has been pretty good this year. But Essendon absolutely has to win this if it's to have any finals hopes whatsoever. And they'll be keen just to atone anyway, play a more positive brand of footy than Geelong certainly let them do last week. So I'm going for the Bombers as well. Not by hope, though. I'm going to tip Essendon by 16 points in this one. All right, that is Thursday and Friday evening. Let's talk about Saturday. First game on the card. Saturday afternoon, 1.45 p.m. University of Tasmania Stadium, a.k.a. Launceston. And it is Hawthorne taking on Fremantle. Of course, Hawthorne digesting the momentous news about Alistair Clarkson's time as coach coming to an end at the end of next year. Sam Mitchell, the man to take over. Fremantle, well, they had another disappointing performance on the road going down to Carlton last week. And uh, this one, finally, hasn't been a happy hunting ground for them at all. In fact, so unhappy that the Dockers have played at this ground 12 times and won precisely one of them. And uh, in most cases, been pretty comfortably beaten. Uh, ParmaBet are telling us that despite that, the Dockers will start favourite. But they are paying $1.78 head-to-head. And Hawthorne paying $2.05. They are the Palmerbet odds. I uh, can check for updates on the app or at palmabet.com, of course. Always remember to gamble responsibly. Stats Insider say that Fremantle Blue, a golden chance to grab a top eight spot by failing to the Blues last week. That loss plunges their September prospects to just 25%, while their fixture has been assessed as the third hardest in the competition from here, with only one more game scheduled against a bottom six team. And that's this one, up in Tassie, or down in Tassie, against the Hawks. Uh, Either side, considering many changes, Farnie? Yeah, well, Hawthorne had two
1: players out under the concussion protocol, Mitch Lewis and Denver Granger-Barras. They'll both come back in, I would imagine. And Conan Ash, who's in and out of that team, unfortunately, basically on, on the injury availability of others, he seems unable to hold the spot and make it his own, will probably play pay the price again. And young Greaves, Damon Greaves, might struggle to hold his spot in the team. Now, disappointingly, Will Day, such a wonderful young player, really promising. Out last week with an ankle injury, they said, uh, spotted on crutches during the week, will we see him again this season? It's not vital, but you'd love to see the kid and uh, certainly they're a better team when he's in the side as for Fremantle well Ethan Hughes is available and he's been out after showing some good early season form expect him to come back into the side so that's a a, a good in for them and actually if I'm mentioning him then Hayden Young Now he was so good last year before he got injured wasn't he he's right to come back in the team as well they're two good in's and whilst they might slot across the back line, I'm sure that they could rejig the lineup to fit them. Mitch Crowden, who played last week as an unused sub, will probably make way. And you know what? There's been a bit of talk this week out of the West that Michael Walters is in danger of being dropped. And when you hear those rumours, it normally comes or sometimes comes from within the club to maybe soften the blow on Thursday night. I've got a feeling there's a blow coming Michael Walters' way, and understandably so, because he's been completely unrecognisable from the champ that played so well under Ross Lyon. Pity. Fremantle have to win this game if there are any chance of giving the the A to shake. I don't think they are I'm going to make the ace, and certainly not on we saw not on what we saw last week against the Blues. But they will win this game, I believe. Why? because Hawthorne's personnel is pretty thin. As I said, Will Day is a big miss in the machine. And unfortunately for the Hawks, their forward line, which, by the way, was so wonderful against GWS, not so good last week, still has young players in it, Moore, Bramble, even Mitch Lewis, who's yet to sort of establish themselves, means... Again, a fair bit rests on the shoulders of an ageing Luke Bruce, who doesn't get it as much as he used to, but still knows where the goals are. The midfield relies so heavily on Mitchell. Warple better last week. Jay J.Gromira as well. The the load's not being shared. Now, you could say the same for Frio maybe, but I think they're deeper with the likes of Mundy and Sarah and Sarong and Fife. Yeah, I thought I'm going to go for Fremantle. I'll stick with them. I've been pumping their tyres up at intervals this year and I'll do it one more time by 11 points.
0: Well, you keep pumping the tyres up, I'll keep letting the air out of them uh, because I don't have a lot of faith in them. I don't think they play Svenja well at all, as one from 12 would appear to indicate. I don't think they play Hawthorne very well. They have actually won their last two meetings with the Hawks but both of them in Perth, where they have a distinctive bandage, and both even then by fairly narrow margins 15 and 16 points. Prior to that, Hawthorne had won 12 out of 13 against the Dockers. And uh, if you want to back that up as being something of substance, that was right through that era where Ross Lyon had the Dockers competing for flags and indeed competing against Hawthorne for a flag in 2013. So the Hawks know how to handle the Dockers. They know how to handle this venue a lot better. I think a couple of things here too. I think they'll be keen to make a real statement about the future of this club post the handover announcement. And I also think, and you wouldn't have seen this aired too widely because they wouldn't want to rain on the parade, but I reckon they will be pretty pissed off about how poorly they played last week in Sean Burgle very, very important milestone game. And it's not often Alistair Clarkson, Coach Sides, put in a couple of bad ones in a row. They were pretty poor last week against Port. I reckon they'll make a real statement here. And I reckon they will just about officially extinguish Fremantle's uh, fading, flickering finals hopes. I'm going for Hawthorne, not by hope, but I'm going for Hawthorne by eight points. That is the first game on Saturday. Let's talk about the next. Saturday, Twilight, 4.35pm at the MCG sees Carlton taking on Geelong. Uh, Both victors last week. The Blues shooting for a rare in the modern day, three wins in a row. And the Cats, pretty powerful last three quarters against the Bombers last week. So they'll want to be... Following that up, Palmerbet tell us that the Cats are pretty warm favourites in this game, paying $1.28 head-to-head. The Blues, as of 8am Wednesday, you can get $3.72 on Carlton against the Cats. Stats Insider, they tell us that Carlton enters this game looking for its first three-game winning streak since 2019. While this match against the Cats will be the perfect opportunity to see how far they've come defensively, as Geelong always exposes teams not prepared to work. The Cats, of course, remain the league's number one team where disposal and mark differential are concerned, whereas the Blues rank ninth and eighth in those areas. Interestingly, the Cats rank third in the league for their kicks leading to uncontested marks, once again indicating their skillful, patient approach to the game. The Blues ranked 16th in contrast in that same statistic. Uh, Selection-wise, finally, what are the Cats and the Blues thinking about? Well, obviously, Jeremy Cameron is a big out for the
1: Cats, and the Blues might have just as big an out, if not bigger, in Patrick Cripps. So we wait to see on Cripps. As for Cameron, Radagalia was rested last week, so Asava could come back into the team. Seems an obvious replacement. And do they leave Max Holmes uh, in the 22? They may. We might go back to... I doubt he'd go back to the medical sub. Uh, We'll just have to wait and see. As for Carlton, Zach Williams is right to come back in the team, which is good news. And more good news, I think, the young Zach Fisher's ready as well. So that is a good pair of... Well, you know what? Williams, not so much, actually. I prefer... Of the two Zacks, give me Fisher. Who do they replace? Tom Williamson. Um, no, he just can't make bridge the gap between AFL and, or VFL and AFL. I think he goes out and maybe Cripps if he's injured. I'm going to say that he's unlikely at this stage. But he may play. If so, they'll look for another player to drop. And uh, probably Caswell because actually the coach has suggested they're only going to go with one ruck for the end of the year, till the end of the year. Won't impact them against the Cats. They're not a strong rucking team for long. Problem is that they're so sound defensively that Carlton are going to find it difficult to score. They've got a great forward in Mackay, don't get me wrong. And won't want to take things easy here. Carlton would love a three-peat, but with Crips. Unlikely to play because of that injury. Oh, I, I think it's going to be a bridge too far, especially with Dangerfield gearing up the way he did last week, looking like a powerhouse back in the guts. So for mine to long, have all bases covered and win this one. We win this one, not by a mile, 21 points. Uh
0: interesting. You just jogged my memory when you mentioned young Max Holmes. Uh, of course, he's played three games on the ground. Uh, Officially, he's played six games. because He's been the medical sub three times. But uh, I did have a a chat to young Max's mum the other day. And uh, I brought up the interesting pronunciation of his surname by Hamish McLaughlin during the call last week. Her response was, what was that about? (laughs) (laughs) I can assure you the pronunciation is Holmes, not Holmes. Anyway, glad we've cleared that one up. Uh, Look, I think the Cats win this one pretty well. Uh, Easy to forget that last start, the Blues not only beat the Cats, they beat them on their home patch at uh, game in front of no crowd last year when uh, Eddie Betts played a key role in bringing home the bacon for the Blues. Uh, A fair bit of water gone under the bridge since then. Uh, That was a pretty emphatic response by Geelong to the loss up in Brisbane last week. And no less after Sporting in the first four goals of the game. It was like the the giant Stern just said, well, this is getting a bit pesky. Let's shrug them off. They did that. They are a very physically strong side. Their attack on the ball is good. And as Stats Insider told us, their method is very deliberate. Uh, sometimes not necessarily easy on the eye, but boy, it's pretty efficient in terms of getting the job done. I think you've got to be right on your game defensively when you take on the Cats, if you have any chance. And that isn't the Blues' strong suit. They've been better at it. They've been better at it the last couple of weeks. But uh, being able to exert that defensive pressure for a full 120 minutes, I suspect, is still an issue for them. Um, an issue for Geelong. Is the venue an issue? Well, there was a time when I think you could argue that Not so much recently, though. In fact, they have won four of their last five at the MCG since the 2019 final series. So I think they're playing the ground a lot better now and using its width, uh, which, of course, they don't do at Codinia Park because there is no width. Uh, I think they have the ascendancy here. I think the Blues will give it a, a serious crack. You know, they've got their tails up. Uh, as Stats Insider told us they've won three in a row since 2019 so it's a great opportunity to make a real statement about their future as well I think they'll keep the Cats honest but I think it's Geelong which prevails in the end I'm going for the Cats by 26 points well round 17 spread out over a number of days only three games on the Saturday let's talk about the third one (laughs) Saturday evening, seven twenty-five sees Brisbane taking on St Kilda. The venue, well, as we record this, we still don't have official confirmation. We do know it will be in Queensland. We do know it will be, of course, either at the Gabba or Metricon Stadium on the Gold Coast. Reason for that is under the COVID traffic light system, um, the Gold Coast is an amber light at the moment, whilst Brisbane is a red light. And as we all know, you don't drive through or into a red light because you get a nasty fine and probably smash up your car. And I can't really torture that analogy any further, so I'll just leave it there. Expecting confirmation pretty soon. Um, They, I think pretty sure Brisbane's still confident Uh, This game will be at the Gabba, but they've played plenty of games at Metricon, obviously, given the derbies against Gold Coast and uh, games during the COVID hubs last year as well. So we'll just wait on confirmation for that one. And because we don't have the venue confirmed, we don't have odds from Parma confirmed either, though you can check them closer to game time when the venue is officially announced either on the ParmaBet app or at www.parmabet.com. Always remembering to gamble responsibly, of course. Stats Insider tell us that the Lions bring in the league's second most potent attack and one which is scoring a goal in 24.7% of its inside 50 entries, which is the league's fourth best figure. While the Saints have clearly improved in recent weeks and have seen their September prospects rise from 7% to 22.6%, they are still struggling offensively. They ranked 15th from a points-per-game point of view and 16th where converting inside 50s into goals is concerned. So it's going to be a tough assignment for the Saints. Definitely playing some better footy, though, in the last couple of weeks um, what are we talking about in selection terms here, Finey? Well, interestingly, St Kilda have
1: sort of uh, telegraphed the fact that Zach Jones is probably right for selection. Now, they're, given his form early on in the year on the back of an injury layoff, they may well be tempted to put him in the team. He's so explosive. His pace is hard to replace and hard to replace it has been. Josh Battle was the medical sub last week. They suggest he was due for a rest. He'll come in, I think for Leo Connolly, your namesake, he's showed a bit in a couple of weeks, but he will call his jets, I imagine, out of the side. And if Zach Jones comes in, that is a more difficult formula to work out because hard really to drop anybody on that performance over the last couple of weeks say, for that last quarter against Collingwood. So I'm not quite sure which way they would go. As for the Lions, Lockie Neal's right to come back into the side. You don't get bigger inns than a Brownlow medalist, a reigning one at that. And Reese Matheson is always the man to make way. Tomato, tomato, potato, potato, Rowan. doesn't matter whether it's at the Gabba or Metricon or somewhere in between in the region they call Logan because this is a game that Brisbane should win, will win, because they are just gearing up and going along nicely. That forward line has many prongs, all of them irresistibly different and hard to match up, from the height of Danaher to the elusive skill of Cameron to the marking ability of the shorter man in McCarthy to the wide-ranging sort of um, long kicking of Eric Hipwood. It's just a hard... Hard forward line to match up against. Throw McStay in for good measure if you're a bit skinny down back. and, and Oscar McInerney floating down to cause further havoc. Zorko bombing them from 55. It's a very hard team to keep the score down against. St Kilda been good defensively, in fact, brilliant until the last quarter last week against Collingwood. We'll give them a pass on that because they kept Richmond to two goals and Collingwood to one at half-time. But those were in sort of inclement conditions at the G. Different world at the Gabba. The good news for St Kilda is that that ruck duo is powerful and also gives them a big-man option up forward. Butler better, Higgins largely lively forward now for St Kilda. So there's some offensive power there. And Long has been good defensively since going back to the forward line. I wonder whether they hang on to him if Zach Jones is in the team. But Brisbane will win this game, I think. And somewhere in the margin of 23 points will be the result.
0: Yeah, I reckon the Lions are going to do it on the bit. Uh, you mentioned gearing up. Well, they are almost a definitive example of that. We know they, they had that slog and struggle to shrug North Melbourne down in Hobart a few weeks back. Well, since then, 44-point demolition job on the Cats, no less, two weeks ago. And then, you know, sort of went along in second gear for a half against Adelaide last week and then just with a dismissive wave said, see you later, put their foot down and ended up winning that game by 52 points. They are potent too. They're second in the competition for points scored behind only the Bulldogs, and there's great balance. Their defence is very effective as well. In fact, they are third in the comp for fewest points conceded. But that forward potency, that's what's really struck me of late. In fact, they've topped the tonne this year now in no fewer than six games. So it's a pretty good record. 17-9 last week. They fixed up that wonky conversion, which had plagued them over the previous couple of years. So they've got that going right. Um, Lockie Neal back in harness, as you said. It's all systems go for them. And look, the Saints are playing a lot of better footy. They might push them for a while. But I think Brisbane wins this one comfortably, whether it's played at the Gabba or Metricon Stadium. I'm going for Brisbane by 30 points. All right, that's Saturday out of the way. Time to move to the Sabbath. Rightio, first game on Sunday, and it's as though someone at the AFL with a perverse sense of humour said, how many different ways can we make this game an extremely weird and unusual fixture? Well, we can take GWS, a team from Western Sydney, and Gold Coast, the team from Queensland, and we can play them in Ballarat. And then if that's not bizarre enough, what we can then do is play them at a start time of 12.40, which I think would definitely put it among the earliest handful of uh, fixtures ever scheduled. Of course, there was that famous one in Canberra back in the late 90s that actually started in the morning. Uh, but 12.40, it's only 40 minutes past the morning. So uh, everything about this game is a bit different. Uh, the odds, however, are fairly predictable. They have GWS, pretty warm favourite, Palmer Bet on the head-to-heads after that fantastic win last week against Melbourne. The Giants paying $1.35. Gold Coast paying $3.23 at Palmer Bet. Stats Insider, they tell us that the Giants are occupying a final spot for just the second time this season and they have a 34.1% chance of hanging on to it come September. As for the Suns, not only was that fantastic win over Richmond last week, perhaps the best in club history, but Took Miller just might have played himself into an all-Australian team. He's presently the only player in the league averaging at least 30 touches and six tackles per game. Over the last five seasons, the only two players to do that over the course of an entire season have been Tom Mitchell, who won a Brownlow, and Clayton Oliver, who might win a Brownlow. So it's pretty esteemed company, fine. What about selection for the early afternoon Mars hit out. What are either side doing there? Any weird selections? No, but good news for
1: GWS because they've got Sam Taylor, that no frills, but really good defender, ready to come back after Sindus Moses has ruled him out since round 10. And he's an obvious straight in for poor Jack Buckley, who suffered that ACL injury last week. And uh, he'll be back, but unfortunately not this year and not for most of next season either. As for their arrivals, well, more merit needs to be heaped on that win by Gold Coast over Richmond when you consider one of their most important players, Hugh Greenwood, didn't play as his wife was giving birth and he was quite rightfully excused from the game. He'll come back into the team and he'll do so for Josh Corbett, the defender who went off with concussion against the Tigers and can't be considered. They meet each other in rare, sort of uh, concurring great form. Great GWS, not the week before against Hawthorne, but they certainly righted the ship last week and can say without a shadow of a doubt, their best win of the season. You know, they've overcome the top of the table demons and at the same time, well, not exactly the same time, but in the same round, Gold Coast had that win against Baxter the Wall Tigers in a game that should have been played up at Metricon and got moved down to Melbourne. That would have been a bit of a morale blow, normally, we would have thought, for the mentally fragile Suns, but they were anything but. So I'm looking forward to an encounter that I'm sure both sets of coaches and players are looking forward to. They would have looked forward to it more up on the um, uh, up in Queensland or in Sydney than uh, down in Ballarat. I don't know if they understand how cold it's going to be there, but it's going to be cold. won't affect the game or my tip. My tip goes with the more prominent side, the better side. Uh, You can imagine Gold Coast doing a number on GWS, but only imagine it because player for player, they don't match up. They don't match up Toby Green. They don't match up Josh Kelly. And and just the overall level of skill makes you tip GWS, makes me tip them by a windy, I don't know if it'll be windy there, but a sort of a cold a cold day margin of seven eight.
0: Well, it's. Uh, I, I must admit I'm struggling to get my head around this whole thing. 1240, GWS playing Gold Coast, Ballarat, It'll probably be rainy and wet and cold. Um, Just imagine the bright red long-sleeved jumpers or uh, actually they they could have the washing powder jumpers on Gold Coast because they'll be the away side won't they? So um, that'll be a good look with the long sleeves in Ballarat and pissing rain and whatever. Anyway, I shouldn't be so cynical. Um, Both sides certainly coming off great wins and for that reason, Gold Coast shouldn't be discounted. Also, I wonder how significant this will be in terms of prior experience. Well, GWS don't have any. Gold Coast have played at Mars Stadium. They played the Western Bulldogs there back in 2018. And they only lost that one by nine points. Um, so they uh, there'll be a few players at least who were part of that experience and know the variance quirks and nuances of that ground. GWS have certainly held the wood. Over the Suns, they have won the last nine meetings between these two teams. Uh, Gold Coast's last victory over the Giants all the way back in 2014. Not sure if there's many or any players left from that particular meeting. Look, the Giants have worked really hard to get that spot in the eight. They're not about to surrender it by losing games like this to Gold Coast. And that's with all due respect to the Suns. I really do hope they back up last week. It'd be terrible if they turned in another stinker and everyone just sort of roll their eyes and go, oh, yeah, that'd be right. Uh, Let's see them back it up and get on a bit of a a roll of form if they want to be seen as a credible AFL entity. But can't tip them against the Giants, who knocked off the ladder leader, the then-ladder leader last week. That was a super win. I reckon they'll be making it two in a row by defeating the Suns by 28 points. That's the first game on Sunday, and the second one, it's going to be a corker. 3:20 p.m. Sunday afternoon, Marvel Stadium. What a game this promises to be. Gee, I'm looking forward to this. Western Bulldogs taking on Sydney. Two up-and-coming teams, two attractive to watch teams. They've got a great history, of course, the 2016. Memorable 2016 grand final. Uh, they've had some great hit outs over the years uh, besides that grand final and uh, they're both in form. I'm I'm so looking forward to this game. So are Palmer Bet. They have framed the odds as follows. Western Bulldogs are surprisingly pretty warm favourites, according to the boys at Palmer Bet, a dollar 32. The doggies are playing head to head. Sydney. You can get $3.42 head-to-head against the Bulldogs there. Stats Insider, meanwhile, tell us that when the Bulldogs win the marks inside 50 count, they've now won their past 13 straight games, which is a number that's being helped along this season by what is easily the game's best inside 50 differential. The Swans actually rank fifth for inside 50 differential and fourth for marks inside 50 while only 17.8% of opposition inside 50s are resulting in a mark, which is a number only Melbourne, the defensive Zen masters of the competition, are faring better in. Uh, What's happening at selection for both those two, Farnie?
1: Fascinating, really. Not so much for Sydney. Last week, James Rowbottom was arrested. They said sore, but he was the medical sub. That's always a curious one when you rest somebody and make them sub. I think you'll come into the team and James Bell, who's a lively customer, probably makes way. The interest comes at the Western Bulldog selection table because Aaron Norton cannot play concussion protocol. Josh Shackey, not so good last week, but very good the week before for Footscray in the VFL Unfortunately, he just doesn't seem to step up at AFL level. And in a big game like this, will they try and roll the dice with him? I don't know. I'll say no. I think they'll promote Pat Lipinski, who was the unused medical sub last week, and Ed Richards, who was ill last week. They certainly want him in the team. I know that Beveridge, or we know that Beveridge likes having him in that side and he was good the week previous. I think he comes in. And maybe Anthony Scott, who was quiet last week, makes way... What a game. An absolute cracker, Rowan. And they're beating each other in ripping form. He don't get better than beating West Coast by 92 points, even at the odd venue of Cardinia Park. As for the Bulldogs, they did it on the bit last week against North Melbourne. They didn't uh, at any point look like losing. And any time they were slightly challenged, they flexed their muscles and their form leading into that has been imperious and it's got them to the top of the AFL ladder. Let's have a look at the key matchups. Of course, Buddy Franklin will be, as he always is, a menace and a target and a possible match winner. And we know that the Bulldogs' back line, even though Keith and Cordy have been pretty good, and certainly of recent times, they can sometimes get taken by the scruff of the neck by a big man up forward. So that'll be Interesting. Papley quiet last week. He's not often quiet two in a row. Look for an improvement there. But Amati um, was the man who stepped up last week. And if they focus too much on Franklin, um, Marty, the way he marked and played last week, will be a danger. Don't worry about that. Hickey great in the ruck. Again, he's up against English. I think that's more of a chop out. But you've got to give the midfield to the Bulldogs because they are so strong there with Bontempelli, arguably the best player in the comp at the moment. But the Swans fight hard in that midfield from the experience, of course, of Kennedy and Parker right through to exuberance with the likes of Roadbottom coming back. But the improvement of a Callum Mills, for example, has been marked. What, What a great game. And I'm going to go for the visitors. I'm going for the Swans. Why? Because Norton's a big miss for mine. And I don't know whether they've got the right replacement for him. It tips the scales to me in Swans' favour, but respectfully by three points in one of the games of the year.
0: Yeah, it's um, it's not a brave selection. Uh, Absolutely every reason you'd be justified tipping the Swans to win. You know, the funny thing about this, it's such an attractive proposition, These two. I was thinking, gee, what's happened the last few times? I couldn't really remember any. There's a good reason for that. This will only be the fourth meeting of these sides in the last four years. So they haven't been scheduled that often. Um, I also have memories of the Swans playing some pretty good footy at Docklands as well. And indeed, that is confirmed by the numbers. They have, in fact, won 17 of their last 22 games at Docklands. That's a record that goes back over a decade. Um, And their record against the Doggies of late isn't too bad either. So I think this will be a cracker. I really can't split them. In the end, I'm going for the Bulldogs just because they've been slightly more reliable a proposition this season. Um, I think they're the physically stronger team. I think they're the more experienced team. And I think that's going to count for something. Uh, Granted, Norton is a considerable loss. This really is a toss of the coin for me. Two of my favourites here, as you know, I've pumped the Swans up all year and tipped them to make the finals. And I think they'll be doing that comfortably, actually. But I think they will uh, not be emerging from this game of the premiership points, but perhaps the honourable loser tag in what should be one of the games of the season. Fingers crossed, let's hope it is, because if both sides play the brand of footy they have been pursuing, it will be fantastic to watch. I to go for the doggies by the almost the narrowest of margins. Western Bulldogs to mine by just two points, uh, which leaves one game left on Sunday. Two big clubs, but uh, in an unusually off Broadway time slot. Well, I said off Broadway, 410 10 pm Sunday afternoon. That is about as off Broadway as. AFL fixturing gets over the course of a weekend. And who's in that slot? Well, surprisingly, Richmond and Collingwood. How the mighty have fallen? Well, at least temporarily. Uh, The Pies pretty dismal for three quarters last week against the Saints in which they could manage just one goal for much of that time. And Richmond, well, two really bad losses for the Tigers in a row now. Firstly, to St Kilda. And then last week, infamously, I think we can give it that tag, infamous defeat for Richmond against Gold Coast. That was at Marvel. This one, of course, their more favoured venue of the MCG. And uh, perhaps because of that, the Tigers are reasonably comfortable favourites with the boys at Palmer bit head-to-head. They are paying $1.55 the win. Collingwood, meanwhile, going at $2.47. Stats Insider say that the Tigers are probably going to have to win five of their last seven games to make finals, which means they simply have to beat a seriously out-of-touch Collingwood. In 12 of Collingwood's 15 games so far this season, the Pies have failed to kick more than 80 points. The Pies are actually averaging just 64.1 points per game over their last seven matches. That's pretty poor. Important to note that the Tigers ranked dead last in the competition for clearance differential and just 15th for contested possession differential. Pretty poor rankings there, though. To be fair, they are two categories they have never fared particularly well at, even at their very, very best, which they certainly seem a long way from at the moment. Well, what can either side do here to... uh, perk things up a bit on the morale front finally are either looking at many or any changes changes yes but not
1: morale building ones morale sapping ones bashar hawley's got syndesmosis the dreaded when you get the dreaded in front of a a new injury you know it's not for a week so he's out for a sustained period and shane edwards ankle is a problem and colman jones unlikely to play with a calf injury now that leaves the door open, they will have to rush Nankervis back. He cannot possibly be run through the VFL. He has to come back in. They say he's right to go. It will be touch and go, but I think they'll play him. I think they have to because maybe your child needs him back up in the ruck. And I don't think Samson Ryan's the man to give it to him. Thompson Dow actually played pretty well when he came on as the medical sub against the Suns. So I think he'll hold his spot and, Daniel Rioli, do they bring him back? Sydney Stack is available. So I'm saying that there will be changes, but most of them forced. And the idea of losing Edwards and especially Hawley on top of the already thin back line that they have to face with no broad and no bolter. Oh, gee, it's hard yards. But Collingwood have got problems themselves because Dacos has been very good in and around the packs and always dangerous around goal. He injured his finger last week and is unlikely to play. They'll make some changes. I think Jack Ginovan, is it Ginovan or Ginovan? I'm going to go Ginovan. He's uh, kicked four goals last week. And I'd be surprised if Robert Harvey isn't tempted and actually rolls the dice on some young players before season's end. So I think he might make a debut. I don't think he's played yet for the pies. Callum, Brown is one of those revolving door players, but he did well in the win over Sandringham. He could come into the team, and there are other changes to be made. Maybe Nathan Murphy misses out. They're sort of frills at at the edges. Cosmetic, not as serious as Richmond's needs. And what a game this promises to be for all the wrong reasons. Richmond, just are bereft of confidence. Now, can they find it against Collingwood on a Cold afternoon on Sunday, maybe, because I'll tell you what Collingwood will be doing, Rowan. They won't be doing what they did for the first three quarters against St Kilda. A, it put them 49 points behind with a minute to go in that third quarter, and B, their fans hated it and the media was scathing because when they moved the ball in the last quarter, they almost stole a famous victory. And I expect them to roll the dice hard and play good play on footy from the get-go. And you know what that means? They'll be in trouble because they just aren't skilled enough to do it against Richmond, even with those injuries. Richmond, for mine, to take advantage of a more adventurous Collingwood and beat them by 31 points.
0: Yeah, gee, the indicators uh, don't point towards a a ripping game of footy, do they? Um, Number least, the last time these two met, uh, all the way back in, well, it was when we restarted last season, you might remember at the MCG. No crowd, a draw, but uh, if such a thing is possible, the most boring draw of all time. Finished up five goals, six each of two, as Peter Landy would say. And an absolutely shocking game of footy. So let's pray it's a little bit better than that. But again, the portents aren't good, are they? Richmond's struggling for confidence, so likely to try to, I think, recapture that by cracking in and grinding out as physical uh, uh, a hard-fought, close, tight, probably low-scoring win as possible, and Collingwood without eh, seemingly the self-belief to be able to back themselves to bust through those defensive shackles. So it could be another really low-scoring, dour affair. Uh, but again, I I'm, look, I have backed Richmond relentlessly all season. I'm not jumping off now. I did say all these things last week, but I think Now, actually, I'm not saying this is the one where they turn it around because I don't think that form is going to come flowing back. But I think this is the one where they rediscover what a little bit of uh, physical commitment um, beyond what they've shown the last couple of weeks can do in terms of delivering results. And I think that even the effort enough, lifting that will be enough to beat Collingwood, I suspect, um, which is still very much... Unsure of itself and uh, untrusting of itself, except in times of desperation. I think Richmond will win it comfortably enough, but I think it'll be pretty low scoring. And uh, because of that, I think uh, it'll be a comfortable win. But when I say comfortable win, it'll probably only be in the high teens. I'm going for Richmond to win this one by 16 points. Now, that is all the games on Sunday, however... That is not the end of the round because we have Monday night football back in round 17. And this one is in Perth. Well, they held off until Monday night to play this one. Uh, should give the prospect of a decent crowd at Optus Stadium. And they will be watching the home side West Coast taking on North Melbourne, 7.40pm Eastern Standard Time kickoff, uh, that is 5.40pm in Perth, of course. Uh, the boys at Palmer Bet have the Eagles, despite that disgraceful effort last week down at Geelong. A very warm favourite, paying $1.20 the Eagles. North Melbourne is paying $4.60. Uh, the under-pressure Eagles returned to Perth to play the bottom of the ladder rose to be music to Adam Simpson's ears. As the Eagles in Perth and against battling teams are two rare problems they don't currently have, says Stats Insider. The Eagles have won 61 of its last 75 games in Perth, while they've also won 34 of their last 37 games against bottom four clubs. So, again, pretty good at dispensing with inferior opposition, but, uh, boy, pretty shabby in terms of putting in sufficient commitment against a decent team last week. So this could be a proverbial flat-track boy scenario. Uh, what about ins and outs, finding either side looking at much here? Well, you know what? Last week, Adam Simpson took a bullet for the boys because he was asked whether he wheeled
1: the axe after that insipid performance down at Cardinia Park. But he said, actually... He'd made five changes for that game and the week before and blamed himself for unsettling the team. So he said, don't expect the axe to be wielded. That being said, they've got two injuries. Jack Redden with a knee injury and Jermaine Jones. Both can't be considered. I think an ankle there for Jones. Back into the team, though, they're expecting uh, sort of the cavalry a little bit in Ryan and Gaff. Both sorely missed. Gaff with his guaranteed possessions and running hard, back and forwards off that wing and Ryan giving some spark to a dead as, dead as a dodo forward line. They're lucky they're facing North Melbourne, who have been good, but only really down in Tassie. They're young North Melbourne. They might bring Campbell in for Zeri and Jared Pollack, a forgotten man, could come in for Will Phillips. Not huge changes. Not big enough to rattle that West Coast cage over in the West. So, all of, the, um, all of the, the guilty party, a lot of the guys who should be hanging their head in shame after that poor effort against Sydney, will probably come out and have good games statistically against North and West Coast will have a good win. That's what your Stats Insider information tells us and our own inner gut feel. And I think West Coast win this one by 53
0: Uh, I think they went it pretty comfortably as well. You know, another aside about uh, these two, I mentioned the Bulldogs and Sydney not having played each other much. Since West Coast and North Melbourne met in the 2015 preliminary final, and doesn't that seem like a long time ago? Well, it was. It was nearly six years ago. They have played just five times since then, once each year in 2016, 17, 18. 19 and 20 and the recurring theme, uh, comfortable West coast victories in four of those five clashes. Last time they met the Roos at Optus stadium, they won by 49 points. I can see this margin being something pretty similar. Uh, Simply they will have got the rounds. Well, I know for a fact they have got the rounds of the kitchen both internally and externally in Perth this week. Uh, Fair to say the WA footy public pretty miffed at the performances of both their sides of late on the road, but particularly the Eagles. um, uh, Patience starting to wear thin there with some of their older players. And boy, they have a lot of older players. I looked it up the other day. They've got eight players over 30 years of age. And uh, that will indeed become 12. We've got another four turning 30 next year. So, boy, is that window closing? I think it it is. I think uh, the prospects of this group of players being able to win another flag is now very negligible indeed, which is a shame because they were a good enough group to have won more than one, I think. However, when you're on the downside and uh, you're getting a bit older, You still enjoy these cushy home games against inferior opponents. Uh, No disrespect to North because I think they've been admirably competitive, particularly in the back half of the season. They may well be in this one as well, but I think West Coast senses a bit of a soft kill and a confidence-boosting result on the cards here. And uh, I think they're good enough to win it. uh, Not by 50-something. I'm going to go for the Eagles by 38 points in this one. That is round 17 previewed. Uh, We've got one segment left in the show and it's a segment where we go back in time.
1: Fantastic 40 flashbacks.
0: All right, finey. A lot of fun doing this one. Now I know you've had a go at me about too many Essendon games, but as you know, in recent weeks, I've been pursuing this thing about sides who play each other this weekend. What great games in the past did they have? And I saw and Adelaide on the fixture card. And of course, my mind was going to wander romantically back to those halcyon days of 1993. And one of the most famous finals, comebacks and victories of all. Essendon Adelaide. It's the 1993 preliminary final. The Crows are 42 points up at half-time, and even seven goals. Essendon completely spooked by the occasion. Can they possibly claw their way back into the contest? Well, as it transpired, they could. Now, we've got a, a lovely little highlights package here. A couple of things I'd like you to observe. Firstly, the crowd noise. Now, I don't know if Seven just had the mics up really high that day. But one goal in particular in this game, and you'll hear it, listen out for it, about halfway through, Mark McCurry it is, kicks a goal. I was there on the day, and that remains the single loudest roar I've ever heard at the MCG. So listen out for that one. It is pretty fun listening, unless you're a cross supporter, so sorry. But great memories. Let's go all the way back to 1993.
2: Comes to the member's side, the ball floating in the breeze. Punched away by Long from Jarman, rebounds for Watson, handball brilliantly, Benham, unselfish, Buick will get it now. Baron Buick gets his second goal, and it certainly was coming. The Bombers surging forward, and they get their seventh goal. Still a contest, Salmon, Buick can't take it. Little touch by Pickman was important, McCurie Close to the boundary line, McCurry does well, handball Salmon, get the goal! And he's got his Inside 50 metres, coming out and taking, a nearly a great but the recovery was enormous. Fletcher and Wengenang combined, and the got the running through the centre of the ground.
3: Streaming away with a fourth bounce, Wanganin's turning lip tack inside out in this turn. Taken back, Parker. Nick go. goes for it. Six. six Those young bucks are
2: getting into it now, aren't
3: they? Well, Wanganin is just dominating across the line. He's got to play there, doesn't he? That's where he plays his best footy. And suddenly, this game has turned around completely. Seven goals in front, of the Crows at halftime. Dead set level here, Salmon, Pittman, still Salmon, now Ben Hart, squeeze a little kick away, Bickley got an awkward bounce, Hamble gave it away in a hurry, McDermott against the flow, court. gets the Handball away, Maynard gives it the long, long stages, Watson important, O'Donnell should go, goes, and puts it through.
2: corner, Salmon with the footy, Buick, he's kick six, the kick slews off the side of his boot, Ola Renshaw, favoured by the bounce, he's got it, dispossessed by Cregenza, very important possession here, taken by Brown, wanganin has got it, did he have the football, one wonders, away goes Ola Renshaw, to Wanganin. in short, Watson, shorter again, Mercury. now Watson gets around, forced to kick with the left, it slews off the side of his boot, Set half back for Adelaide. Very important possession. Watson's got it. Watson goes for goal. So, in the preliminary final thanks to a goal kick by Timmy Watson.
1: So I forget how Star started. That was a brilliant Essendon team. And how about Boris Buick? I mean, Darren Buick is obviously highly highly regarded by Essendon people and football people but I, I don't know whether we really give him the the kudos he deserves. Now I'll tell you one thing about that comeback Rowan that wasn't part of that commentary and that was the famous Mark Bickley well fart as they were about to head back onto the field just before or just at the end of the half-time break, and, yeah, I think a lot of people, most people know the story, but it was the, the great concentration breaker, they record, and also one of the great releases of wind of all time.
0: Yes, uh, clutching at straws, uh, saying it cost some victory. Oh, I've got to tell you, though, I though, I think Bix is still pretty sensitive about that subject because I was part of a Twitter discussion. This is only literally a couple of weeks ago. And the '93 preliminary final was brought up. And Bix was in on this discussion, and someone mentioned the expulsion of gas, and all of a sudden, Bix disappeared from the Twitter conversation, and I haven't seen him back on Twitter since. So, um, if you're listening to this, Bix, sorry, it, it wasn't me that uh, that did the joke. But uh, come on, you know, when you when you got to go, you got to go. And I, I don't, for a moment, think it costs your side of the preliminary final. Uh, I've told you my story about this game, haven't I, Fanny? How um, I was working for the Sunday Age, uh, sitting in the press box next to the Sunday Age's guest finals columnist, Lee Matthews, uh, coaching Collingwood then, of course, and the Pies weren't in the finals, so we were lucky enough to get Lee on board to write for us. So sitting next to him in the press box and uh, seven goals down, so I'm pretty flat. Bombers. Come back and it's getting pretty exciting, as you could hear by that Mark McCurry goal. Such a great passage of play into end, end to Fletcher to uh, who was it, Oler and Shaw to Cowthorpe to McCurry. Well, as the crowd rose, I rose to my feet in the press box, sprung to my feet, uh, threw out my arms and happened to knock We Matthews, who at that precise moment was raising a cup of scalding hot coffee to his lips, uh, the said coffee is then tipped right down the front of his pristine white shirt. He was <laughs> scheduled to get go straight to the airport and catch a flight after that, so I ruined his shirt. I'd given him third-degree burns. I looked around, and boy, if looks could kill, and I thought, he's going to Neville me here. I'm in enormous trouble. Fortunately for me, all he did was say, Geez, Rowan, I knew you were back for Essendon, but I didn't know you were that passionate. Um, (laughs) uh, A very, very memorable day. Certainly one of my favourite football memories. So apologies to Crows fans. I'll make it up to you uh, with some football flashback in the future. All right, Fanny, what have you got for us?
1: Well, that's a good segue to my highlight because in a memorable, wonderful year for Lee Matthews, this was not probably his favourite afternoon. And I speak of a famous victory by Footscray over Collingwood in 1990 in round 17. And what a game it was, a ripping game of football. Of course, the Bulldogs only a year earlier were facing extinction, merger with Fitzroy, and things were pretty bleak. But they had a a good season in 1990. They gave the finals a rattle. They didn't quite make it, but they did knock off the eventual premiers, in a famous grandstand finish. Sit back and listen to the wonderful commentary. Bruce McEvaney and the other play-by-play commentator is Peter McKenna. And the special comments, always special when Don Scott provides them.
3: Banks uses his body. Now Turner, still Turner, breaks the tackle. Drop punt, Campbell in the front, McEwen at the back. Plays it like a defender McEwen. Wine has to wait. Terry Wallace, quickly to Atkins. Atkins wide to Cameron still a chance Foot he's quick kick calling him. will he take right on yes he does i thought he would one bounce oh, another bounce left foot look at this a marvelous kick he's put them in front that's as good as you'll ever
2: see and foot's player back in front Six playing 91 and who would have expected this what a great game Colin Hook who had a dirty third quarter made a number of mistakes taken off the ground at three quarter time he and Hawkins were spoken to individually by the coach Terry Wheeler and what a splendid piece of play and what a sensational game brilliant play by Colin Hook great presence of mind great confidence to do it 2 minutes and 24 seconds of play left can the Magpies kick the next one Ten foot spray hold on? Richardson runs to 50. Has a shot at goal. Eppleston and Dacos. Tapped down by Eppleston and through for a point. Oh, the pressure in this game. It's like a final. What a great spectacle. Four points to the margin. The time clock shows two minutes to go. Adrian Campbell, pressure on him. Oh, oh dangerous. No. He's gone short. Cameron inside. They've lost it. Great tackle, though but why wouldn't you kick long at this stage of the game? Well, I suppose they are programmed to do it, but a little bit more experience would have been on on that occasion. Would have steadied down, or should have steadied down Cameron, and kicked it long, as Peter McKenna just said.
3: 96 to 92. Safety the boundary there by Wine and Hunter. So, So a minute 35 remaining. It's been one of the classic contests, this. Collingwood picking themselves up from nowhere. And now Footscray respond, McGowan after Banks did very well, Monkhurst wants it, Banks throws it away, Kerrison, still Kerrison, and Kerrison has just missed, Well, oh. well, 12.21 to 14.12, and we've got a minute and eight
2: seconds to go, and, and I'll, I'll bet you he'll go long. Campbell kicks long this time, he's a 60 metre kick, he's wanting to go short, look at him. Oh no. Well, he's, this time he does kick it long, right out over the half-back line. Foster has it punched away. Free kick to Foster. He wrestled with Banks, and that's a vital free kick. A minute of play left. Can they hang on, Footscray? Can Collingwood snatch it as McGuinness kicks it long to centre wing?
3: Wigney in the front spot. Gafer against him. Wigney does well. Kelly falls over. Right. They've got to do it here, Collingwood. Monkhurst is going to provide the lead. He kicks it to Monkhurst, but it's not a good kick. Wine takes Monkhurst on, and he should attack. Oh, or goes short. Right. He had to kick it long. Now, right from the center square with 30 seconds remaining. A ball to be won here, oh. and Foster wins it. What magnificent
2: play by Stephen Wallace, because he chipped in in front of Barwick and shepherded him away from the ball. That is unselfish stuff, and well done by the former Bulldog skipper. Terry Wallace is where he'll kick
3: it, long and wide. 12 seconds remaining. Oh, Oh, Mark. What a mark. They've won it. Well, they deserve to win it because they've been in front all day. It's 14-12 to 12-21 and the siren goes.
0: Great stuff. Great finish. Um, And, yeah, the context there is important, isn't it? Because Collingwood were a powerhouse on their way to a flag and uh, the Bulldogs, well, they nearly didn't exist in their own right. That was the first year post the failed attempt to uh, merge with Fitzroy. So really re-establishing their identity. So critical win in symbolic terms, big Sunday crowd there, 52,000 at the MCG. Great commentary too of the famous Colony goal by Bruce McEvaney, isn't it? When people talk about what a great commentator Bruce was, that was uh, the height of his powers, I reckon. Uh, very correctly predicting what the player with the footy might do, take on the man on the mark, isn't that one of the most best, one of the best remembered goals in AFL history as well? Funnily enough, for uh, I guess in the scheme of things, a relatively routine home and away game, but everyone seems to remember that moment, don't they, Fanny? I tell you, here's another bit of trivia for you. I know you love your trivia. Good spread of goal kickers for the doggies that day. Danny Delray kicked three. Chris Grant kicked three. Their leading goal kicker, though, kicked four. Do you know who that was? Um, I, I, I'm not sure. I'm trying to think.
1: Maybe a surprise four goals. Did Steve Wallace drift forward? I don't know.
0: I, I, I can't tell you. Well, Steve Wallace played. No, I don't think many people at all would guess this one. Four goals, three, in fact, he kicked for the game. Darren Davies. Darren Davies. He ended up at St
1: Kilda, Darren Davies. That's right. He had a a
0: bit of a a rude hairdo, didn't
1: he? Yeah, well, he had a bad broken leg, I think, ended his time at the Bulldogs. He was sort of an explosive type half-forward flanker who I met watching a grand final in a pub about six or seven years ago. And his girlfriend said, um, you know, it was all very convivial and, He's, she said, my boyfriend played league football, but I bet you you don't know who he is. I looked at him and I said, that's Darren Davies. And he had a big smile on his face that he was <laughs> recognised, I'll tell you. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was just... Um, I think everybody, except Collingwood supporters, obviously, just were rooting for, for Footscray. Not because they were playing Collingwood, even though that helped, but because they were backs against the wall in 1990.
0: And that was a great win. Yeah, interesting um, time for the Pies too. So that was they would that would be the first of three losses from the next four games. Yeah, uh, they lost to Essendon in that huge Sunday game at Waverley, televised live. They then got smashed by uh, Hawthorne the following week, and looking a bit wobbly. Well, from that moment on, they didn't lose a game. Won their last two home and away games, drew that qualifying final against the Eagles, won the replay, and then smashed Essendon in both the second semi and the grand final. So maybe yep. one of those losses they need to have. Either way, a great footy memory, finding. Uh, Nice way to finish the show. That's it for this week. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, We've got some wonderful sponsors. We need to thank you, of course. Uh, Palmer Bit, always proudly bringing you the Footyology podcast. Play the punting advantage this footy season. Always remember to gamble responsibly. And our other wonderful great backers, Fidey, if you will. Yeah, and I want to talk about, not
1: at length, but just the people behind those great businesses and, and why they're just such great friends of the program. Andrew's Hamburg's 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. The two Gregs there run the show and they're loyal and they're great blokes and they deserve every bit of good patronage you can provide them. And Nick Spartels, also so loyal and just a wonderful bloke, great fan of the program, loves some of the funny uh, promos that we do for West Point properties and always appreciative. Great blokes, great supporters of the program, Rowan.
0: And we are very chuffed to have Stats Insider as well as an official footyology partner, sports and data-driven industry leaders, providing model projections and analysis of more than 15 sports across the world, including Wimbledon and the European Championships coming to the pointy end this weekend. Uh, also home, Stats Insider, to some of Australia's finest and most independent sports writing and analysis, all free to use, so check it out, statsinsider.com.au. Give them a follow on social media as well, particularly on Twitter, at Stats Insider. Thanks to them. Thanks to you out there. If you want to support the show financially, we'd love you to do that. And you can do that at the supporter page, wherever you're listening to this podcast through ACAST or become an official footyology patron. And uh, you'll find links to our Patreon account all over the footyology website, Footyology. Dot com dot au. Some terrific reading on the site once again this week. Thanks to your company. Been a lot of fun. Hope your team has a good win this week or avoids an ignominious defeat at the very least. We'll be back to review this round on Sunday evening. Between then, of course, don't forget our live post game stream on both Twitter and Facebook from 10 45 pm. Friday evening following the big Essen Adelaide game, always a lot of fun. We go in-depth into the game. We take your questions and comments and stuff around a bit at the end too. All good fun to finish up Friday night footy. So please join us for that one as well. Have a great weekend, everyone. We'll catch you later.